In John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Today, we will talk about man's total depravity and total inability. Welcome back to the Doctrine for Doxology podcast. If you ever want to email me, you can do so at doctrine for that's the number four, doxology at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at the Real Bear Martin. Now, last week we talked about original sin, and there's there's you can really break that down into two basic categories: original guilt. And so again, most of last week's episode was on this this idea of original guilt that we are guilty in Adam. Okay. Now today, the the second aspect of original sin is original pollution. And so we we are certainly because of Adam's sin, all of humanity is polluted, so to speak. And there's two different ways to think about that: total depravity and total inability. So that's the the two main uh, topics today in our outline: is to, man's total depravity and man's total inability. Now it is sometimes, or or basically all the time, depressing just to look at what Scripture says about our condition, okay, our our sinful condition. Martin Lloyd-Jones, though, says this about studying these doctrines. He says, we must understand the truth about ourselves in sin. The way to measure the height of God's love is uh, is first of all to measure the depth of our own depravity as a result of the fall. So as we learn these doctrines today, we are we are putting that against the grace and the love of God. And so as we learn the depth of our sin, the grace and love of God is magnified. So that's our certainly our doxological uh, end point today is that we we glory in the grace of God. So the indictment, so to speak, of man as as originally polluted is this verse in or this these set of verses in Romans three, starting in verse nine. Paul says, "What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin." The reason I include this verse is because this is establishing Paul's point. He's he's what he's about to say applies to all people, both Jews and Greeks, or or when you when you read that in the Bible, Jews and Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles, that's a, a way of saying all people in the Bible. Okay, so everybody is under sin. And then verse 10 continues, Paul says, as it is written. Now that phrase there is indicating that Paul is going to start quoting from the Old Testament. He's going to weave several different quotes together. Most of them are from the Psalms. Uh, one of them is from Isaiah. And there's some some references, so to speak, to Jeremiah. And so so there's a lot of the Old Testament. Paul's going to kind of wrap up the main idea here. He says, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. 
and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All right. And so Paul, again, in thinking about our whole purpose in all of this, this passage of scripture is just before one of the most powerful passages of scripture, Romans 3, verses 23 through 26. I've spent a lot of time on those verses in previous episodes, but that's the the glorious message of the gospel, God's justice and his grace on display right there, his righteousness. And so Paul is, is laying this out saying, this is who we are in our sin. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. He closes that with, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So this is this is mankind in his totally depraved state, all right? So let's talk about a definition of total depravity. First off, when you hear this phrase, total depravity, we have to be careful to say what it is not, because total depravity is very much misunderstood, okay? Total depravity does not mean that all men and women are as bad as possible, okay? It does not mean that every unregenerate person is leaving an uh, an orgy, driving drunk, stopping on the way home to buy drugs, rob a bank and murder babies, okay? So this this does not mean that every person is like this, okay? All right, so it's not a, that we are as bad as possible. That's not what total means. Total depravity does not mean that people in a fallen state have no innate knowledge of God. Okay? So we we know that people that are not believers still believe still know let me say it that way still know deep down that God exists Romans 1 uh, talk, talks about that that they are suppressing the truth about God in unrighteousness all right total depravity does not mean that men and women do not have a conscience or knowledge of what is good and what is bad so there is a general consensus among humanity that it's bad to steal and things like that so that's not what total depravity is is denying. Total depravity does not mean the unregenerate person is incapable of recognizing or admiring virtues. We can see this with with people with with different uh, movies and things like that, where and, and books where the unregenerate person would admire someone for their self sacrifice or their bravery or their courage or the you know those those types of things. So they so that is that can be understood and recognized and admired by the unregenerate. And then total depravity does not mean that every unregenerate person will indulge in every form of sin. Okay, so for example, you may have someone who has extreme moral integrity, but their their sin that they really struggle with would be internal pride. Okay, so it doesn't. So total depravity does not mean that every unsaved, unregenerate person is is sinning in every area of life. Okay, so those are several different things that I want to kind of clear the air and say that total depravity does not mean that. Okay, now for a more positive definition, Martin Lloyd Jones says this: "Quote: Man in his fallen condition." has an inherently corrupt nature, and the corruption extends through every part of his being. This is where the, the word total comes into play. It, that, that corruption extends through every part of his being. Lloyd-Jones continues, it also means that there is no, and he, and he points out, observe the adjective here, there is no spiritual good in him. 
Yes, there is plenty of natural good. There is natural morality. He can rec- he can recognize virtue and so on, but there is no spiritual good whatsoever. Again, continuing Lloyd-Jones' quote, Every unregenerate person is at enmity against God and God's holy law. That is always the great characteristic of total depravity. To put it another way, all that person's powers are misused and perverted. Okay, so Romans 8, 7 says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. All right, and so th- this is what Lloyd Jones is arguing for: that the person they can be, they can have natural morals, but there is no spiritual good in them. Okay, now why would he say that? Well, I talked about this uh, maybe in last week's episode or the week before. But when we when we think about sin, or uh, or another way to the opposite of that would be righteousness. You know, so pure holiness. If for, for something to be considered truly righteous in God's eyes, it has to follow three basic things. And this is, a, a, this is John Frame's argument here, and I, to, I very much agree with it. So John Frame says, in order to be truly good and righteous in God's eyes, then an action has to follow a standard, which would be God's law. It has to have the right goal, which would be for the glory of God, and it has to have the right motive. And so it's motivated by faith in God and a love for God, all right? And so that, in order to truly please God as a, a righteous thing, all three of those must apply, okay? must, must be, those are the three requirements. Hebrews eleven six says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. So this is why the totally depraved person, the unregenerate person, cannot please God because they are none none of their actions, even if they accidentally are following God's law, the standard, their motivation is never out of faith and love for God, and their goal is not for God's glory. And so they are basically always sinning because of that. Now, R.C. Sproul uh, positively defines total depravity as this. Total depravity means simply this, that sin affects every aspect of our human existence. Our minds, our wills, and our bodies are affected by sin. Every dimension of our personality suffers at some point from the weight of sin that has infected the human race. So again, when you think about total depravity, it's different from utter depravity. Utter depravity would be that you are as wicked as you possibly can be. Total depravity means that uh, that corruption spreads to every aspect of our human existence, okay? And, and Sproul, Sproul uses our minds, our wills, and our bodies to, uh, to, to talk about that. So I think it's good to sort of dwell on this, this mind, will, and body. How is our mind affected by sin. Well, a few different things pop up to me. One, we can so easily rationalize absurdity. So we our minds are affected by sin because we do not think properly. Okay? So we can rationalize just about anything. There are intelligent people, okay? There are intelligent people in many aspects of life who can somehow affirm transgenderism. This is this is the absurdity of the way our minds are affected with sin. Uh, 
lots of lots of different sins can be rationalized um, with with the way that we think. We are not thinking according to uh, the fear of the Lord. So this foolishness by man in his sin is seen uh, in again Romans. Just read Romans one. So it, it's blatantly obvious that God exists, yet their minds are so deceived by sin they will reject the created order of God and suppress it for a lie. Along the same lines, we commit logical fallacies because of sin. We are, you know, no one is perfectly consistent with themselves in the way that they argue. When I think about atheists, they will, in order to try to be consistent with themselves, they now have to redefine nothing as something in order to justify their views about the origins of the universe. So that they, and this is, this is just obvious to anyone who's listening that they're not talking about nothing. They are talking about something. And so uh, I've mentioned a video by Neil deGrasse Tyson on this concept of, of what is nothing. There's a YouTube video where he's having a little chat with the the co-host, and he Neil deGrasse Tyson goes in this long explanation about nothing, and and it's actually something, and the co-host picks up on that. So th- there's there's logical fallacies. There's we don't think properly um, in our totally depraved state. Okay, now also think about how is our mind affected. Think about forgetfulness. We forget basic facts. We forget the goodness uh, in 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 our sin. We Christians still struggle with sin. We forget the goodness of God, His provision, His protection, His presence. All right, referring to the Israelites that God led out of Egypt, Psalm seventy eight eleven says they forgot His works and the wonders that He had shown them. So we forget things. As humans, we are supposed to image God, and God never forgets. Okay, and so so the, our the image of God is distorted because of sin in in the basic uh forgetting where your car keys are things like that 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 is uh, a a result of the sin all right so that's our minds how is our will affected well we are free to choose whatever we like god is not forcing us to choose evil but because of original sin our free will choice is for sin we we have a propensity towards sin. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says this, and, if, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the powers of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in, among, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, this is verse 3 by the way, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, the we we have a free will in the sense that we get to do as we please. The problem is that as an unregenerate person, as as a person who's lost, who's not a believer in God, the problem is that we always desire sin. Charles Spurgeon says this, when we shall see the dead rise from the grave by their own power, then may we expect to see ungodly sinners of their own free will turning to Christ. So it is our, our we have a free will, but that free will freely chooses evil and sin. We are at enmity against God as, as unregenerate sinners. We hate the things of God. We are hostile towards God. 
All right. Martin Luther says, free will without God's grace is not free will at all, but is the permanent prisoner and bond slave of evil, since it cannot turn itself to good. John Calvin said, to will is human. To will the bad is of fallen nature, but to will the good is of grace. All right. So in and of ourselves, we choose evil freely. We, we, so we have a free will. The problem is that, that because of sin, we have a propensity towards wickedness and evil. So how are our bodies affected? Well, certainly we have sickness, aches, pains, degeneration. Um, so I, I'm an eye doctor, if you did not know that, and so I deal with this aspect of sin all the time. I'm, I'm constantly not able to help people because some things you just cannot help. The, the body and the eyes wear down. And so this is, a, this is a constant reminder of the corruption and pollution of sin. In our, in our sickness and frailty, the image of God in us is distorted because of sin. So God is strong, intelligent, capable, uh, his presence is needed and and desired okay so when we think of, when we contrast this to our failing bodies we are weak demented incapable in in our sickness we avoid each other's presence all right and so that's that's the effect of sin on our bodies all right so that is that is kind of the the summary that sums up what i want to say about total depravity all right moving on to our next uh, main topic today, and that would be total inability. Because of original sin, man is polluted or corrupted, and he is totally unable to come to God on his own. He is he is unable to save himself. All right. Now this brings up a historical argument. All right, two men, Pelagius and and Augustine. You may know him as Saint Augustine. So they they had an argument. When I think about Augustine, um, I just always think of the year 400 A.D. That's just kind of a roundabout marker that that helps me think about when Augustine lived. Okay, so Pelagius and Augustine are debating basically man's ability to come to God. Okay, and so let me just sum up three different positions based on this argument. Okay, so Pelagianism, first off, taught by Pelagius, who is a British monk, all right? And there's two terms that I want us to keep in mind. One of them is monergism, and the other is synergism. So monergism, mono meaning one, it means one uh, is, is able. Okay, so Pelagius taught a type of monergism, which is that humans have the ability with completely without God being needed to save themselves, okay? So Pelagius rejected the doctrine of original sin. All humans were were born completely free to choose good or, or evil. Uh, he believed it was possible to be sinlessly perfect, okay? So man is not corrupted by the sin of Adam. And so this is monergism, okay? Only one... Uh, one is acting, and this would be, for Pelagius, this would be human ability, Okay. Now, a middle ground between Pelagius and Augustine is semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism is synergism. Synergism, these are this is cooperation, okay? So this is human cooperation plus divine grace. So semi-Pelagianism 
taught that this is how man is saved. It, it, humans um, come to God, and then it's God's divine grace that saves them. And it's both of those cooperating synergistically together. So semi-Pelagianism rejects total depravity as well. Um, it's, it says that man is weakened by the fall, but not totally depraved. He still has a remnant of goodness which can choose God. The Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms is a great little resource that I have, and it says this, quote, Semi-Pelagians maintain that faith begins independently of God's grace, although such grace is subsequently necessary for salvation. That's the key point with semi-Pelagianism, that it begins independent of God's grace. So in semi-Pelagianism, God is simply waiting for the sinner to choose God. If the sinner, in his own ability, makes a free will choice to repent of their sins and turn to God, then God will extend his grace and save them from their sins. He doesn't have to, God doesn't have to save anybody. That's why it's called grace. Um, and we deserve this punishment, but God is very gracious in that he forgives. That's kind of the the thoughts of a semi-Pelagianism. Now, the issue with this is that, and, and this is this would be an, an innocent mistake, okay? But a lot of people think about salvation this way. I used to think about salvation this way when I was younger, because there's always this call to, hey, believe in the Lord, okay? Believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, and and God will save you, right? And so it's there's this idea that, okay, well, the faith... The faith part, that's my part, okay? I, I do the faith. I do the believing, and God, he's he doesn't have to save me, but he's gracious, so he does. And so that's this semi-Pelagianism idea. So it's, it's a very, very common belief about how man is saved, that man does his part in faith, and God does his part in grace, and that's that's how it happens. And this is an error. This is wrong. This is heresy, okay? And so so here's the thing. For someone to hear the full truth, okay, and reject that and embrace this heresy and say, you know what? I do come to God on my own, and then he's He's gracious to save me, but it's it's completely me coming to God. Then that that is heresy. That's where the error is. But for a child who just doesn't understand the implications of what they're believing. I, I, they're, I still believe that they are truly a Christian. Okay, because once they understand it, like, oh, okay, I, you know, it is all of God's grace. All right, and so semi—that's semi-Pelagianism. Now, I want to talk about this this aspect of well, the faith is my part and the grace is God's part. In Ephesians two eight. Paul writes this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now, what's important here is is a, a word that you may not think is important, but it's the word this. So when the Bible says, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. The, in, in the Greek there, this is, is a neuter word. So if you if you've taken Spanish before, this is probably the the way that most people would understand this. If you've taken Spanish before, you'll understand that there are some words that are called masculine words and some words that are feminine words. And well, in Greek, you have masculine, feminine, and neuter. 
and this this word in this verse is is neuter. Okay, now the reason that's important is because grace and faith are feminine, and so what is what is being said here by using a neuter word is that the whole thing is what this is talking about. So when Paul says, "For, for by grace you have been saved through faith." And this is not your own doing. When he says this, he's talking about the grace and the faith. The whole phrase is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The grace and the faith is a gift of God. All right? So it is not the the, the faith is not the human part and the grace God's part. It is all the gift of God. Okay, and so in in Hebrews twelve two, Jesus is called the founder and perfecter of our faith. The King James Version says in the same verse that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. The New Living Translation says that Jesus is the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. And so what is being said here is that it the, it's the faith and the grace that is by God. Okay. They are both a gift of God. And faith and belief, let me just point out real quick, faith and belief are the same thing, okay? The Greek noun pistis means faith, and the Greek verb pistuo means to believe, okay? So faith and belief are the same thing, all right? Now, Today, I am making the argument that because of the doctrine of original sin taught in Scripture, our salvation is the work of God alone, and this would be the position of Augustine, okay? So this is Augustinianism, and this is the orthodox view. Every true Christian who has, again, who has taken the time to learn about this theological concept, every true Christian must land in the Augustinian view of of this, okay? This is the only orthodox position. If you truly embrace semi-Pelagianism or Pelagianism, that is heresy. That's that's false, okay? So, uh, what did Augustine teach? Well, Augustine taught monergism, but instead of the monergism of Pelagius, meaning humans save themselves by themselves, Augustine taught monergism, that it is God who is the one who monergistically saves sinners, okay? So it is God's God's work alone. Now, they are, and, and of course, the Augustinian view affirms this doctrine of original sin. Now, there are two different views of God's grace within Augustinianism. And so one would be prevenient grace, okay? Now, prevenient grace is the grace of God given to individuals that releases them from their bondage to sin and enables them to come to Christ in faith, but does not guarantee that the sinner will actually do so. I think that that's a great little definition. I read a lot of different definitions of prevenient grace, and this is this is actually from a website called gotquestions.org. So let me read that again. The grace of God, the prevenient grace, is the grace of God given to individuals that releases them from their bondage to sin, okay? Releases them from this original pollution where they are unable to respond to the things of God. It releases them from that and enables them to come to Christ in faith, but does not guarantee that the sinner will actually do so. That's a, a So that's prevenient grace. That's one view of the way that God's uh, grace is working 
in the heart of the unbeliever cultivating the faith. So that's why a person who holds to this view of provenient grace, if you ask them, you know, what percentage of your salvation is God and what percentage of your salvation is you, they would say it's 100% God, okay? All right, because it was God who was working in, in me to begin with that even allowed me to be able to see the truth of the gospel, okay? So that's the way that they would argue for that, okay? Now, the other way that God's grace is viewed is this idea of irresistible or effectual grace, okay? Now, some of you may recognize irresistible grace is one of the the five points of Calvinism. And so you have total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. So that makes the little TULIP acronym. So irresistible grace or effectual grace, it if you think about it, it technically is also a kind of prevenient grace in in the in the fact that it comes before or pre uh, pre faith. Okay, so it is the grace of God working in the heart that causes the believer to have faith. Okay, so often along these lines, um, Calvinist or ref- people who hold to reformed. Um, theology, and I'm in this camp, would say that it is that regeneration precedes faith, okay? So it is God working, and then God is the one who causes us to have faith. Now, the difference between prevenient grace and irresistible grace is that with prevenient grace, it does not guarantee that the sinner will actually believe. It sort of enables them to kind of choose God or not. And then my opinion is that if God works in this way and gives this effectual or irresistible grace to a person, they will become a believer, okay? So it is it is an effectual type of grace. All right, but again, both of those views are orthodox. I consider, I have, I mean, tons of friends strong Christian men and women who hold to this idea of provenient grace. But if you ask them, every one of them, they would say, I am saved 100% by the grace of God. So they're they're not in the semi-Pelagian camp. Now, oftentimes, uh, Calvinists or people who are Reformed will accuse the the Arminian or the, the the people who hold to provenient grace, they'll accuse them of being semi-Pelagianism, uh, but they're they're not actually uh, holding to those exact views. Okay, so that's why I, I consider both camps true Christians, true believers. You it has to be by God's grace alone. All right, now I had to lay some groundwork there with Pelagius and and Augustine and all that stuff. Now let's look at the Bible. And you kind of uh, hash some of these ideas out, okay? So I believe that Jesus taught this doctrine of total inability, all right, in John 6. So the context here is that Jesus has just fed the 5,000. That evening, he walks on water across the Sea of Galilee, and the next day, the people realize where Jesus is at, okay? And he's in Capernaum. They go and find him. And this is the sermon, so to speak, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So picking up in John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Real quick, 
in this passage, coming to Jesus is the same thing as believing in Jesus, okay? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Coming to Jesus is to believe in Jesus. There's several things in this passage where Jesus is going to use different words, but they all basically mean believing in Jesus, okay? Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's verse 37. So all that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him. They will believe in him. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, meaning the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So the will of the Father for Jesus is that Jesus loses nothing of all the people that the Father gives to Jesus. Just to read verse 37 again, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Okay? Now, John 6.40 says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is essentially a summary statement here, but this is the general call of the gospel. There's there's nothing about predestination or election in here. This is just simply Jesus saying, Everyone who believes in me will have eternal life, okay? This is the will of the Father, and and I will raise them up on the last day. But verse 40 does not negate this idea that the Father is giving a people to Jesus, and everybody the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus, okay? And so that's, that's what's been mentioned before, but there's a general call here. Everyone who believes in Jesus will have eternal life. Continuing on to verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. And then he says this, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So we've talked about people coming to Jesus. The Father is, all that the Father gives me will come to me, okay? And then Jesus says, no one can come. No one, uh, one way to think about that is no one is able to come to me. No one is able to believe. No one is able to have faith in me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, this word draws is very important. It's used a, a few a uh, few other times in the book of John, and then I'll give you another example in Scripture. So uh, it's the Greek word, the Greek verb is helkuo, and it means to draw, of course, or to haul or to drag, okay? So John 12, 32 says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. All right, now on the surface, this verse here, that Jesus will draw all people to myself, could be misunderstood to be teaching universalism, that everybody is saved. 
when 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 Jesus is lifted up, this is a reference to him being crucified on the cross. I think when we when we put Jesus teaching together in the book of John, this is talking about he is drawing all types of people, Jew and Gentile. Uh, just before this passage in, in John 12, 32, the Gentiles come and they they want to have a word with Jesus. And so he's he's drawing all people, Jew and Gentile, to himself. We're all under sin. And Jesus' crucifixion is the way that all people are saved. They're, the Jews aren't saved different from the Gentiles, okay? Uh, anyway, that, that word there, draw, is used in John 21, 6. This is, this is when the disciples were fishing, and Jesus said, cast your net on the other side of the boat, all right? John 21, 6. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in. That word haul there is the same word as draw, and so again, they're... they're pulling in this net of fish. In Acts 16, 19, talking about Paul and Silas, it says, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. That Again, there's helkuo there for dragged them into the marketplace. So this drawing by God, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This drawing is is it's the idea of being pulled, like fish in a net being pulled, okay? Or Paul and Silas dragged into the marketplace. This is the act of God. God is the one doing the pulling, and, and he is dragging. He's not wooing or begging or pleading. Um, he's not luring like like me trying to get my my dog to to come back in the yard with a with a treat or something. It's not that way. God is the one who's working and and pulling us. Uh, into the boat, like like fish in the water, okay? So it is God's action. He is working monergistically. Now, I think also in this passage, it's very clear that there is a specific group that the Father gives because it's Jesus' responsibility, and you have to ask yourselves, did Jesus follow the will of his Father? Absolutely. It is the Father's will that all that the Father gives to him comes to Jesus, Jesus loses none of them, and he gives them eternal life. And so there's there's a specific group that the Father is giving to the Son, okay? So this is our total inability to save ourselves. No one can come, no one can believe in Jesus unless the Father draws them, unless the Father has given them to the Son. And so we are 100% reliant on God's grace. All right. Another way that uh, the Bible, I think, shows that we are totally unable to come to God on our own is by looking at the difference between the flesh and the spirit. Now, the word flesh is used many different ways in Scripture. You certainly have to pay attention to the context to to determine if it's good or bad and that sort of thing. So, for instance, in Ezekiel 36, 26, the heart of stone is, is bad and the heart of flesh is a good thing. But in the New Testament, the, the New Testament often uses the word flesh to, to be something that's negative, and it's contrasted against the spirit. For instance, it, it's contrasted with living according to the flesh as opposed to according to the spirit, or it talks about the desires of the flesh versus the desires of the, the spirit, okay? So Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, flesh 
means the working of that nature which we have inherited from Adam, that which is entirely natural and which is entirely without the influence of the Holy Spirit upon it. This is the the meaning of flesh. Not Again, not every time in Scripture, but in some of the passages that I'm getting ready to read. So Romans 8, 1 through 8, has a great contrast of the flesh and the spirit. It says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. One more passage uh, contrasting the the flesh. Now, flesh is not really used here, but the natural man is referred to. And and so you can think about that as the flesh. So again, think about man's total inability. All right. Second, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, or you could think about this as the flesh, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. All right. And so that's that's our total depravity and our total inability again in contrast to the wonderful grace of God and, and the love of God. So Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. Thank you.